welcome to Right Here, Right Now, the show where we read aloud your submissions, your favourite pieces of classics, writing, prose, poems and everything in between. Before we kick things off tonight, there's something important we have to do. Sin acknowledges and pays respect to the owners of the land on which the House of Sin and Studios stand, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Sin also acknowledges and pays respect to the elders and traditional owners of the lands our content reaches, as well as the radio stations we broadcast from across the country. Kate, is there something else we need to say before we kick off tonight's show? Yes, um, we would just like to give a content warning. Um, We are reading creative works tonight and some of the themes covered might not be for everyone. So if sensitive or little ears are tuned in, we recommend you switch stations. Thanks for that, Kate. All right, so we're going to head straight into our first submission. Um, Kate, you've got something for us? Yes, um, this is an anonymous subscription, so um, I'll just go right into it. This story is called She Braided My Hair to the Beat of ASAP Rocky. As I dance, I can hardly see the DJ five metres in front of me. Trapped in a jungle of limbs, the extent of my vision is a kaleidoscope of broad backs, raised arms, flashing lights and wild eyes. Pressed between my friends Livy, Haley, and Tash and a horde of strangers, moving my body to the rhythm of, pulse, of the pulsating music pushing up against Tash on one side and an unknown stranger on the other. I feel wild. I've had a few drinks, more than a few really, so I'm a bit bit jerky on my uncomfortably high heels, but I think I'm pulling it off. The shadow behind me presses up against my back and I feel the outline of a pants zip. A guy is grinding up against me. Fuck. I don't know what to do with this situation. A part of me wants to turn around and see who it is, maybe lean in for the inevitable kiss, but the less drunk part of me is not convinced that this is what I want. What if the guy's ugly, or I know him, or he's older? And can I really be bothered? I didn't come here to kiss guys, for God's sake. I came here to celebrate Haley's birthday and have a good time with the girls. Still, I feel powerful and desired as an arm reaches around my waist. A surge of gratification of being chosen but I know I'll regret it if I do. Just as these thoughts begin to climax in my head, I feel a hand pulling me away, tugging me through the crowd. I follow without question, believing my friends have decided to get another drink. When I peer closer through the smoky light, I realise I'm being pulled along by an unfamiliar girl. I pull my hand back at this startling realisation, coming to a stop in a less crowded part of the club. The girl turns to face me, and she is the coolest person alive right now on this planet. Her white hair is done up in two braids that become buns at the back of her head. Ears pierced from top to bottom, deep red lipstick covering her thick lips, and a black halter dress falls down her body. She leans into me like she wants to say something, so I lean closer. I don't feel threatened, just confused. Sorry for kidnapping you and everything, it's just that... I know that guy, and he's the biggest creep. Seriously, the fucking perv stalked my friend for a month after getting with her at a party. He's so fucked, honestly. She half shouts this at me to be heard over the music. I think she must be a few years older than me. She seems too confident to be 18. Really? Well, shit. Thanks for saving me, then. You're my hero. 
no problem. It's what I do, you know, save the day and shit. It's my job. She leans against the wall next to me, and we stand side by side watching people in front of us for a moment. I love your hair, by the way. I've never been able to braid. Did you do it yourself? I ask. Thank you. I did. I copied a YouTube tutorial. Here, come with me. She grabs my hand again, dragging me off to some unknown location, through the club and into the girls' bathroom. Have you got a hair tie? I gesture to the band on my wrist. She nods seriously, considering her options. Is it okay if I take your hair out? I nod eagerly. I'm excited by that this cool, possibly older girl is hanging out with me, and I think about what a cool story this will be to tell people. I was out on Saturday night in town, and this random girl did my hair in the, for me in, my, in the toilets. How funny and completely unique is that? The girl braids my hair into two sections before joining it in a single bun on top. The music is still playing loudly and I get glimpses of lyrics every time the door opens to another person. I think the song ASAP Rocky I think the song is by ASAP Rocky. It looks so different, but I love it. She smiles at me in the mirror as another girl compliments me on my new do. Thank you, it's amazing. I feel like a whole new person. She smiles and hugs me. I hug her back. The warmth of our bodies feels like a metaphor in this moment. You look a million dollars, girl. We leave the bathroom and I see my friends dancing on the side of the dance floor. I run over to them, dancing as I get their attention. They hug me, jumping up and down. Your hair! Oh my god, when did you do that? What the fuck? It looks amazing, I love it. I try to explain between the loud music and fumbling bodies, turning to find the girl who did it and introduce her to my friends. But she's gone, lost in the crowd, or returned to her own friends. I don't see her again that night, and in the morning, as I wake up with my still braided hair, I realise I didn't even get her name. So that was um, She Braided My Hair to the Beat of ASAP Rocky, and it was actually an anonymous submission, so it's kind of a bit mysterious, a bit fun. It is. I really like that title, though. I think that... That really suits the piece. <laughs> yeah, and I really liked the dialogue in it. I feel as though it was very genuine and realistic to what you actually hear. You know? In a girl's bathroom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What do you have next for us, Lucy? Okay, so next I've got a poem by um, Sarah Lee called What Every, and it's published in um, the University of Melbourne's um, women's department annual magazine, Judy's Punch. So this is the magazine for 2017, but there will be one for 2018. If it is not yet published, it definitely might be. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a really, it's a really great publication. So everyone should check that out. You can buy it. You can get it for free around uh, Melbourne Uni. So this one is called What Every. What every twenty-something Brunswick Delling anxiety-struck Asian woman with nightmares of their ex should know. You would probably want to rehearse what you've always wanted to say to your ex before you run into them because you'd probably not regret you'd probably regret not having told them your true feelings just to look cool. What every 20-something Brunswick Delling anxiety strike Asian woman should know. You'd have to start loving your soft big cheeks and the black hair on your legs someday. What every 20-something Brunswick Delling anxiety strike woman should know. It's not the end of the world when you've accidentally finished a bag of twisties, Maltesers and a bar of Cadbury in bed as you watch the sunrise. What every 20-something Brunswick-dwelling woman should know. You'd want to invest in a good duvet because the broken heater isn't going to fix itself and this winter isn't getting any warmer. What every 20-something woman should know. 
that it is okay to miss your own mother despite having said horrible things to her in your teens. What every woman should know. It is perfectly fine to have days where you can't deal with yourself or to have days where you want to squeeze your own self because you love yourself so much. You aren't hysterical, you aren't crazy, you're a woman and an impeccable one too. Oh, that's such a nice piece. Yeah. It's very empowering. It is. It's felt, really felt lovely. strong. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so that was What Every by Sarah Lee from Judy's Punch. So the whole uh, publication is um, about feminism, about women. Mm. Um, What's well, not anyone to who love. identifies as women. What yeah. is not to love. Yeah, it's a really great publication, so everyone should check it out. Yeah, <laughs> and looking over your shoulder at the images in it, it looks really beautifully made. Yeah, they have some really, really, really beautiful graphics all Mm. throughout it another magazine published magazine that we love at right here right now radio is voiceworks and we were lucky enough to catch up with the editor from voiceworks earlier this week and we're going to be having an interview with them uh later in the show with moira schlossberg but before we get there i've got another submission this piece is from harriet donegan and it was published in Verve Zine online earlier this August. And it's a bit of a longer one, so strap yourselves in. When the opportunity arose to house it for the Verdiers, Gretel was brief in packing her linen laundry tote, carrying the entire of her belonging eight pairs of underwear, four shirts, one skirt, two trousers, six odd socks, and her mother's one green wool coat. She wavered at the studio door, only to wade back through the moist, makeshift room and gulp down the remaining half of the single refrigerator item. Sated, Gretel wiped clean the white moustache of milk onto her one-wool coat sleeve and headed Subway Way across town to the first arrondissement. Not all that long later, a man answered Gretel's knock, a man whose narrow figure engulfed Gretel in an ominous shade, a man as formal in nature as he was impeccably dressed. Mr. Verdier extended his right dainty arm, indicating a rather unconvincing invitation inside. The girl faltered through the doorway and down a polished oak hallway, a hallway long enough to warrant her young legs tired, eventually arriving the pair in what Gretel would soon learn to be the smallest of the couple's three living rooms. "'Dear, she's here,' Mr. Verdier announced to the seemingly empty room. A face appeared to prove otherwise— Framed by a fluffy blonde mop of hair, and in its centre protruded a set of insincere, voluptuous lips. A little lower displayed a neck scarf of Dalmatian print and an elegant black dress that hugged a never-had-kids figure. Mrs. Verdier. Gretel recognised her from old couture campaigns. Across her lap lay a towel, with layer upon layer of short hairs, all of which were white and black. "'We really must go, dear.' Mr. Verdier stressed, looking towards his wrist. I was just saying goodbye, as Mrs. Verdier returned her attention to the dog. My handsome man, my handsome Mr. Pongo Wongo, Mrs. Verdier squawked in a nonsensical tone. Gretel couldn't quite distinguish if she were a Cruella or an Anita, perhaps a hybrid of the two. Anyhow, as Mrs. Verdier high heel hip swung her way over, Gretel determined, whatever she was, she was something. Everything you need to know is in this Bible, including what to do if... Mrs. Verdier hesitated. Gretel didn't entirely understand what she was alluding to, and looked to Mr. Verdier, 
who was busy caressing the deep concave of Mrs. Verdier's unjutted upper back. If, if the time comes, she let out in dejection. Mr. Verdier, while still generating a comforting gaze, was sort of tugging at Mrs. Verdier's shoulder now. With his other free and even daintier arm, he busied in collecting their luggage and coats. Mrs. Verdier's neck remained craned. Lucky she chose black, Gretel judged, watching Mrs. Verdier's face run down well. Her face. He mouthed to Gretel with imperil, filled irises a wide and pronounced T-H-A-N-K-Y-O-U. With, the two, with that, the two grew smaller down the hallway and eventually out of sight, the weight of a large door being pulled and dropped onto young Gretel's shoulders following moments later. Alone now, Gretel stood with the folder. Its outside revealed a juvenile laminate job. Gretel stroked its textured pattern of ununiform black circles on white. She looked towards Pongo, already within the depths of a comatose sleep. She realised this would likely be the summit of the Dane Dalmatian's activity, his dominant, dominant dormant state for the majority of Gretel's stay. Though she was not really complaining, so long as he didn't retreat into any less a state of conscious. The two got off seemingly well, though Pongo only stirred at the din of pellets hitting his marble bowl. Gretel would drag his mat and force him to her lap, in greed of a little company for otherwise solitude evenings by the fire. It was the dead of night, number five, when Gretel woke to the smell of something stale. Lingering at the threshold of Pongo's living room quarter, Gretel winced, for absent was the sound of Pongo's heavy breath. It was a thick silence, one of anticipated solemnity. The room had dissipated to just the sound of an outside southerly caressing the exterior of the house. Gretel's snaggletooth had pierced her quivering tongue, and her mouth had filled with blood, staining her palms of fingers a filthy black red. She took two steps further. Alas, it was true. Pongo was dead. Gretel, at a loss, returned to an unsettled sleep, a sleep plagued by dread and Mrs. Verdier's sobbing head. She made her way, a good 360 toss and turn around the king-size bed, but poor Gretel, she couldn't lose the image of poor Pongo lying there so lifeless, so dead. Gretel murmured and soon sobbed until her tear ducts were wrinkled, then completely dishevelled. She could not delay it a moment longer. It was when moping about the kitchen that Gretel was reminded of the Bible on the counter. Of course, how silly she had been to forget the furry thing. In our absence and in the grave event of Sir Pongo Verdier's death, we wish for you to follow the following protocol in the respect that we would. First, you must cover him in his favourite pink blankie. Gretel fetched blankie, which was already entwined in Pongo's stiff grip, and cloaked him appropriately. Second, you must phone the ambulance to take him to our vet, Dr. Henry Dubois. Gretel phoned 112, but they spat that they would not take a dog and cursed Gretel for such absurdity. Third, you must phone Dr. Henry Dubois and tell him the news and that you're coming. Gretel copied in the number of Dr. Henry Dubois to the phone. He did not answer. Fourth, you must not leave Pongo's side until his, he has been seen Dr. Henry Dubois and his cremation arranged. Gretel turned on her tiptoes and through some squinted eyes peered over at Pongo. 
Finally, enclosed, you will find some 200 euro for any expense. We thank you and apologise for any strife this may have caused you. The Verdiers. Now I must warn that the events that succeed don't award as Gretel's finest, though you must not be too quick to judge. Cash in hand, Gretel toyed with the logistics of the situation. Borrow one of their cars? No, it's too far without a licence. Chop him up into little pieces for her rucksack? How could she? Mr Dubois would fright. Bury him in the backyard? Never. What if they refurbish the garden? Take him in a shopping trolley? Nay, people would surely stare. All of this brought her an hour dawning on morning. Gretel craned her neck, closed one eye and spanned her arms the size of the dead Dalmatian. Jarred-armed Gretel paced to the garage to a shop-worthy array of suitcases. Again, Gretel craned her neck, closed one eye, and with the pongo-size armband surveyed a suitable candidate. Back and forth she hovered until finally Gretel arrived at one brown leather case some way up the wall and slightly right, which she deemed fit for the part. If Gretel felt lugging a slightly cooperative pongo to her lap was awkward, dead pongo proved just arduous. She scooped, squashed, arranged then rearranged, placed and settled for ramming Pongo inside. Finally, the only thing that came between the two zips was his tail tip. Gretel settled for this. The sun was just up and drinking the rain-paved streets of Rue Blanc, the iridescent patchwork product, product reminiscent of the shampooed coat within her very case. To think just 24 hours ago she had been bathing the poor Dane, Gretel hesitated at the top of the station stairs. Despite her free arm braced to the railing and her rigid right-angle figure, Pongo still managed to propel the pair down the stairs. Gretel brushed her mother's one green wool coat clean and soldiered on, some slightly bruised and somewhat battered. The criss-cross chaos that was the underground did not resound well with Gretel being a diagnosed dyslexic. She opted for the pointoir, trying to draw as little attention as possible as she heaved her luggage on board. It did not take long for Gretel to sense a pair of curious eyes tracing her green wool back. She could smell their owner's deodoriser, a dumpster gin concocted odour. Indifferent to the visibility a train window travelling underground allows, the man did not give up, even had nerve to approach and lurk some four paces closer. Piss off. Gretel rolled her eyes exclaiming her headphones on and stiffening her slender frame hostile. Immersed in Ethiopian beat, Gretel momentarily returned to the map. Again overwhelmed by all the criss-cross coloured lines and tiny congested text, Gretel removed her headphones to try and draw some sense. Madame! Madame! A woman was yelling at Gretel. Madame! Vite! Vite! Il a ta valise! Gretel spun to see, through closing doors, her suitcase disappearing in the leggy crowd of the peak hour Paris underground. As she followed its handle, she observed, hand in toe, of one wretched bin man. Gretel thumped her body against the glass, but the train was well and truly on its way. Much the same manner that Mr Verdier had caressed Mrs Verdier's back, the lady caressed Gretel's. Gretel sulked into a seat as the train accelerated out of the tunnel. Her hand tightened around a hefty paper package. Gretel unwrapped the envelope for the first time. Chock-a-block with cremation crash. 
But with no Pongo to cremate, Gretel soon arrived at a new and far brighter state, a state of contour clothing and artisan cakes. A grin grew on the young girl's face. Meanwhile, the suitcase thief, who lets Don Dreshawn, was busy lugging the brown leather case up the Pont de l'Alma stairs against peak hour foot traffic. Dreshawn did not take a moment's rest, and by the time he reached his street, he was ravenous with greed. Dreshawn was hoping for expensive cosmetics, perhaps some narcotics. He stunted the idea of such victorious outcomes, for the last time he had thieved, he ended up with a rucksack of pre-loved children's toys. Though this time was no child's play. Judging by the case's quality jewels were not out of the question. Slimy with sweat, Dreshawn collapsed on the 11th landing and lugged the suitcase for one last time. As a white light distilled, Dreshawn was back in the shallow space of his squat hole existence. Excited, however, for the first time since he took up the space between a makeover was on the forecast. Because a makeover was on the forecast. Despite all his desperate tugs, the zip would not budge. Dreshawn drew his pocket knife and shredded the brown leather apart. Absent were the designer labels of rich material. Not a single vest of rabbit or wolf coat bristle. Not even a four, Dreshawn squawked. Absent were the electronic devices, not a single cosmetic or the trace of a narcotic. Far out, not even a wallet or a wristwatch. Instead, out fell a day-old dead Dalmatian with one blood-stained tail. Dreshawn's complexion disgraced red. Elsewhere, Gretel glided off the train at Tullery's, heading straight for Rue Saint-Honoré. This was fond and not unfamiliar territory for her. Gretel had spent lengthy hours marvelling at the chic stores that lined the perfect paved streets. She still could not believe that there appeared not a single cobble lain out of place. A vintage and antique store enchanted Gretel inside, the kind where the workers wore white silk gloves, and where, asleep in the window, lounged a frilly-frocked Prince Charles Cavalier. With one hand gripping the wads of pounds within her jacket pocket, Gretel surveyed the jewellery cabinets. Voulez-vous regarder? A gloved man came between Gretel and a dazzling ruby ring. Lovely, isn't it, madame? The same voice repeated, heavily accented. Gretel looked up to see an elderly man in a penguin suit and circular fine-framed spectacles. The gloved man glided the ruby onto Gretel's middle finger. Her eyes could not conceal an ounce of her unadulterated infatuation. They had even taken on the rich ruby of the jewel's colour. Gretel, hypnotised, nodded wide-eyed and made for the ornamented counter. Oh, yes, and I'd like that too, Gretel said, pointing to a large brown leather suitcase some way up the wall and slightly right. That was a piece by Harriet Donegan called The Dalmatian That Kept On Giving. What a great piece. I really loved that. Yeah? Yeah, that was so nice, even though <laughs> the dog died. The but dog died, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but really luckily you piece. didn't get too attached at the start, I think. Yeah, No, exactly. I, it wasn't a, a very, very, very lovable dog. You know, it yeah. was more of a, a mellow dog. Yes, mm -hmm. a mellow dog. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. 
Thank you so much to Harriet Donegan for yeah. uh, sending that to us. Um, if you would like to submit to our show right here, right now, you can always email us at right here radio. That's W R I T E here radio at gmail.com. Yes, now we've got something special for you. Earlier in the week, we met Mira Schlossberg here at the studio. Uh, they are the editor of Voice Works. Mara is a writer, comics artist, and editor who makes work about queerness and spirituality. Their work has appeared in The Lifted Brow, Rabbit, and Scum Mag, among others, and they were a 2017 Wheeler Centre Hot Desk Fellow. Mira, thank you for joining us on Right Here, Right Now Radio. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me a bit about VoiceWorks and how you came to be involved as editor? VoiceWorks is a magazine for writers and artists who are under 25. Um, we publish and pay people in that age range, and then we also provide feedback for everyone who submits and is unsuccessful, which means that everybody who submits to the magazine gets um, like a one-on-one edit from an editor and I got involved uh, almost three years ago now I published a story in VoiceWorks and then shortly after that they had a call out for editors so I applied to be on the editorial committee and I was a volunteer fiction editor for two years and then in like April of this year I became the editor. Yeah awesome and how do you find it goes editing somebody else's work. Is that something that took a bit of practice or have you always been a bit of a natural editor? I think it definitely takes practice. Um, When I started, I was really nervous because the editor who had edited me when I was published was so talented. Mm. And then she went on to become like the head editor. Mm -hmm. Um, Like that's a position I have now. And I was like very intimidated by her and just wanted to be that good. But like over the years... And doing it so many times, I think, like, you sort of learn what things to look for and what things are, like, the key elements to help the writer draw out to make a piece better. Mm. And if you were to try and give, I know it's hard without a piece of work, but a piece of advice to young writers looking to edit their own work, is there something that's a bit of a go-to for you? Um, I think to edit your own work, like, the first thing is to not look at it for quite some time like if you try to edit it right after you've written it you're going to be like I'm a genius this is the best thing ever (laughs) no edits but then if you give it a day maybe you'll come back and be like oh it's full of things that could be improved yeah that's really good advice actually taking some time yeah and we've heard VoiceWorks is launching a new online platform how is this going to be different to the normal uh, paper magazine you have Um, The online platform is going to be specifically to publish stuff that we can't put in the printed magazine, which is really exciting. So um, we have some really cool new editors on board who are like experts in digital writing and we're going to start, well we are currently open for submissions and we're going to start publishing in October like um, interactive fiction, work with hypertext, uh, poetry that involves code and stuff with like sound elements and also bots like twitter bots cool yeah and how can a young writer get involved in VoiceWorks? where can they find you um oh my god i don't actually know our website (laughs) i think it's voiceworks.org.au that could be wrong yeah we can Um, fact check it sorry yeah um if you go uh online to our 
tribute page. We're open right now for submissions to the website and to the print magazine. Um, and we accept, we're accepting nonfiction, full-length pieces, fiction, poetry, comics, and comic pitches and art submissions right now. Awesome. So a lot to get yeah. submitting. And in, as well as your work as editor, you're a writer, a comics artist, and an editor, as I've just said. Is there a role you're liking best at the moment? I don't know. It's really hard to pick which one is the best. I feel like I'm inclined to say comics because that's what I've been doing the least of recently. And yeah. so I'm like, comics are the best. I should do more <laughs> comics. But if I were like working on a comics project and drawing every day I would probably be hating it yeah the grass is always greener on the other side right (laughs) and just like sin voice works is focused on young people under 25 how important do you think it is to focus on young people in the writing space I think it's really important voice works is really unique in that we offer the opportunity for people who have never been edited before to go through like a really long and generous and supportive editing process. A lot of other magazines have less time between when they would accept a piece and when they need it to be published, so there's not a lot of space to like work the piece to its full potential. Um, so like if they get work that maybe needs a longer edit, they can't accept it, but that's like what we're there for. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really good because it is really important to learn as a writer how to work with an editor and how the like process of going through the work over and over and over again and improving it like should go. Yeah, definitely. And getting used to that environment in a maybe less pressured um, than you'd feel going up to a publisher the first time around. Yeah, and like we exist like specifically to provide support to people. So we always will say in our emails to the writers, like, we are editing you, but you have the final say. And like, we want to make sure that you're comfortable with the piece when it is finished. And if you want to argue with us, like you can, and we welcome and encourage that. (laughs) Um, And we want to like make it a discussion and not just like, you have to make these changes and we go to print at this day. And if you don't accept them by that time, it'll just be sent to print and you won't be able to fix it. Yeah, I think VoiceWorks sounds like a great resource for many of our listeners and submitters. So thank you very much for joining us, Mira. Thank you for having me. That was our interview earlier this week with Mira Schlossberg, the editor of VoiceWorks, which is a great resource that everyone should be keeping their eyes out for. Now, because that was a pre-recorded interview, we thought we'd better give you the most up-to-date dates for submissions for VoiceWorks. So until Sunday the 30th of September, you can submit art, comic pitches and pit and completed comics to VoiceWorks. However, they do have a new online platform aside from their print copies that does receive submissions ongoing. So head over to the VoiceWorks website and check out those dates to see how you can get published through them. And I believe they do also pay. If that's something that's important to the writers out there, they do pay per piece. Yes. For we, print. Okay, yes. Mm. Um, yes, and we 
think that writers should be paid. So. Yes, we do. You're doing <laughs> That's work. Just wonderful. That's <laughs> a great my personal opinion. Um, <laughs> great. So, do you have a piece for us now, Kate? Yes, I do. Um, this next piece is um, an excerpt from Genesis, and um, it's a, which is a science fiction. Uh, sort of book by New Zealand author Bernard Beckett and here it it is. Great, take it away. (laughs) Annexed moved down the long corridor. The only sound was a gentle hiss of air filter overhead. The lights were down low as demanded by the new regulations. She remembered the brighter days but never spoke of them. It was one of the great mistakes thinking of the bright of brightness as a quality of the past. Annex reached the corridor and turned left. She checked the time. They would be watching her approach, or so it was rumoured. The door slid open, quiet and smooth like everything in the academy zone. Annex Manda? Annex nodded. The panel was made up of three examiners, just as the regulations had promised. It was a great relief. Details of the examination were kept secret and among the candidates, rumours swirled. Imagination is the bastard child of time and ignorance, her tutor, Persales, liked to say, always adding, not that I have anything against bastards. Annex loved her tutor. She would not let him down. The door closed behind her. The examiners sat behind a high desk, the top a dark slab of polished timber. Make yourself comfortable, the examiner in the middle spoke. He was the largest of the three as tall and broad as any Annex had ever seen. By comparison, the other two looked old and weak, but she felt their eyes upon her, keen and sharp. Today she would assume nothing. The space before them was clear. Annex knew the interview was being recorded. Examiner. Four hours have been allotted for your examination. You may seek clarification, should you have trouble understanding any of our questions, but the need to do this will be taken into consideration when the final judgment is made. Do you understand this? Annex Manda. Yes. Examiner. Is there anything you would like to ask before we begin? Annex Manda. I would like to ask you what the answers are. Examiner. I'm sorry? I don't quite understand. Annex Manda. I was joking. Examiner. Oh, I see. A bad idea, not so much as a flicker of acknowledgement from any of them. Annex wondered whether she should apologise, but the gap closed quickly over. Examiner. Annex Manda, your time begins now. Four hours on your chosen subject, The Life and Times of Adam Ford, 2058-2077. to Adam Ford was born seven years into the age of Pelito's Republic. Can you please explain to us the political circumstances that led to the Republic's formation? Was this a trick? Annex Topic clearly stated that her area of expertise covered the years of Adam's life only. The proposal had been accepted by the committee without amendment. She knew little of the political background, of course. Everybody did. But it was not her area of expertise. All she could offer was classroom recitation. Familiar to every student. This was no way to start. Should she challenge it? Were they expecting her to challenge it? She looked to their faces for clues, but they sat impassive, as stone, offering her nothing. Examiner. Annex Manda, do you understand the question? Annex Manda. 
Of course I did. I- I'm sorry. I'm just... It doesn't matter. Annex tried to clear her mind of worries. Four hours. Plenty of time to show how much she knew. Annex Manda. The story begins at the start of the third decade of the new millennium. As with any age, there was no shortage of doomsayers. Early attempts at genetic engineering had frightened large sectors of the community. The international economy was still oil-based and the growing consensus was that a catastrophic shortage loomed. What was known then as the Middle East remained a politically troubled region and the United States... I will use the designations of the time for consistency, was seen by many to have embroiled itself in a war it could not win, with a culture it did not understand. While it promoted its interests as those of democracy, the definition was narrow and idiocentric and made for a poor export. Fundamentalism was on the rise on both sides of this divide, and the first clear indications of Western terrorism in Saudi Arabia in 2032 was seen by many as a spark for a fire that would never be doused. Europe was accused of having lost its moral compass, and the independence riots of 2047 were seen as further evidence of secular decay. China's rise to international prominence and what it called active diplomacy led many to fear that another global conflict was on the horizon. Economic expansion threatened the global market. Biodiversity shrank at unprecedented rates and the last opponents of accelerated climate change model were were converted to the cause by the dust storms of 2041. In short, the world faced many challenges and by the end of the fifth decade, the current century, public discourse was determined, was dominated by a mood of threat and pessimism. It is, of course, easy to be wise with the benefit of hindsight, but from our vantage point, it is now clear that the only thing the population had to fear was fear itself. The true danger humanity faced during this period was, its, was the shrinking of its own spirit. Examiner. Define spirit. The examiner's voice was carefully modulated, the sort of effect that could be achieved with the cheapest of filters. Only it wasn't technology Annex heard, it was control, pure and simple. Every pause, every flickering of of uncertainty, the examiners observed them all. This surely was how they decided. Annex felt suddenly slow and unimpressive. She could still hear Persaley's last words. They want to see how you will respond to the challenge. Don't hesitate. Don't talk your, way, talk your way towards understanding. Trust the words. And back then it sounded so simple. Now the, her face taunted and she had to think her way to the words, searching for them in a way one searches for a friend in the crowd. Panic never more than a moment away. Annex Manda. By spirit, I mean to say something about the prevailing mood of the time. Human spirit is the ability to face the uncertainty of the future with curiosity and optimism. It is the belief that problems can be solved, differences resolved. It is a type of confidence and it is fragile. It can be blackened by fear and superstition. By the year 2050, when conflict began, the world had fallen upon fearful, superstitious times. Examiner. Tell us more about these superstitions. Annex Manda. Superstition is the need to view the world in terms of simple cause and effect. 
As I have already said, religious fundamentalism was on the rise. But that is not the type of superstition I am referring to. The superstition that held sway at the time was a belief in simple causes. Even the plainness of events is tied down by a thick tangle of premonition and possibility. But the human mind struggles with each complexity. In times of trouble, when the belief in simple gods breaks down, occult conspiracy arises. So it was back then. So, so it was back then. Unable to attribute misfortune to chance, unable to accept their ultimate insignificance within the greater scheme, people looked for monsters in their midst. The more the media peddled the fear, the more people lost the ability to believe in one another. For every new ill that befell them, the media created an explanation, and the explanation always had a face and a name. The people came to fear even their closest neighbours. At the level of individual, the community, the nation, people sought signs of others' ill intentions, and everywhere they looked, they found them, for this is what looking does. This was the true challenge of the people of this time faced. The challenge of trusting one another, and they fell short of this challenge. This is what I mean when I say they faced a shrinking of the spirit. Examiner. Thank you for your clarification. Now please return to your story of the times. How did the pub Republic come to be established? Just as Persele's expect had predicted, Annex was buoyed by the sound of her own voice. This is what made her such a good candidate. Her thoughts flowed, followed her words, or so he explained it. Everybody is different, and this is your skill. So although the story she was telling was a stale one, left too long, examined too often, Annex found herself wrapping it in with new words, growing in confidence with every layer. And so that's an expert from um, Genesis by Bernard Beckham. It's a bit of a um, full-on piece, that one. is a bit weighty. <laughs> no, but I really liked it. I don't think we've played enough science fiction scenes um here so i really liked that yeah that's definitely something we've been uh lacking in so if anyone out there has any science fiction for us we will definitely take it you can send it on to on through to us at right here radio at gmail.com yes you can <laughs> now i have another piece from who we heard from earlier this evening harriet dunnigan and this is a piece called 210. 2.10, and back again. You are up to 10 second shower number, not yet 10. You tap, 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 the tap, tap, the tap. I said tap that tap, 10 taps, tap yourself clean, boy. Two tap, five tap, 10 tap clean. I said 10 tap clean. Is it? Must be. 10, 10 a.m. Feet facing south window. Mmm. You deplete Mr. Dove deodorant can. You tap, tap, Mr. Mobile. You tap, tap, corner to bench. Benchy bench top, tattered bench top, tap. Poor Mr. Mobile and Mr. Bench top. You tap, tap, quick, quick. You count, count, quicker, quicker. Two tap, quick, four, tap, quick, six, tap, quick, eight, tap, quick, quick, tap, ten, tap, try, not to stare. I said try, not to stare. You plug in, plug out, plug in, plug out. Out plug, in plug, out plug. I think stay the fuck out plug. You out plug, in plug again, again, and your lips race from one plug to ten plug. We have tiles of squares, tiles of squares, tiles of squares. 
You put down, pick up, put down, pick up, down or up, put, fucking pick. You pick to put down the jocks. A neat spread on tile number 10. Once I move them, you move them back again. Our kitchen's entry is different to its exit. You go in entry, out exit. In out, out in. You lap one time, two time, five times, ten time. Beep, 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 beep. Microwaves have buttons. Immutable bloody buttons. When we hear ten beeps ten times every one lap, two lap, ten lap, we get angry. Very angry. Next to the microwave are corners. One, two, three, four. You have ten fingers for one, two, three, four corners. Top, bottom, bottom, top. Inside the one, two, three, four. Corners is a window. I stare at you. You stare through. Looks like you see something, a sum of things, some other thing, something we can't. Alas, your lips race, race. Again, again, from one to some something that equals ten. That was 210 and back again by Harriet Dunnigan. Wow, what a tongue twister. Yeah, you read that well. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty pleased with how that went. I was a bit worried. Um, So this is a piece also published on Verve, which is where we heard Harriet's piece from that we gave earlier in the show. I really enjoyed that piece. I thought it was almost musical. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. It actually, I mean, I don't know if this was her influence, but it Mm. reminded me a lot when she, every, there was a part in there where it was like a lot of taps and it just reminded me like, of that sound when it's like silent and you're just like tapping your iPhone and it's yeah. like tap 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 yeah. tap 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 yeah. you know like, <laughs> exactly yeah I loved it yeah I think it comes through in that yeah definitely yeah so thank you Harriet <laughs> okay um our last piece for tonight um is a short story by Peter Carey um it's called The Last Days of a Famous Mime and it is published in his collected stories wonderful take it away Lucy shall do The Last Days of a Famous Mime The mime arrived on Alitalia with very little luggage, a brown paper parcel and what looked like a woman's handbag. Ask the contents of the brown paper parcel, he said, string. Asked what the string was for, he replied, tying up bigger parcels. It had not been intended as a joke, but the mime was pleased when the reporters laughed. Inducing laughter was not his forte. He was famous for terror. Although his state of despair was famous throughout Europe, Few guessed at his hope for the future. The string, he explained, is a prayer that I am always praying. Reluctantly, he untied his parcel and showed them the string. It was blue, and when extended, measured exactly 53 metres. The mime and the string appeared on the front pages of the evening papers. The first audiences panicked easily. They had not been prepared for his ability to mime terror. They fled their seats continually, only to return again. Like snorkel divers, they appeared at the doors outside the concert hall with red faces and were puzzled to find the world as they had left it. Books had been written about him. He was the subject of an award-winning film. But in his first morning in a provincial town, he was distressed to find that his performance had not been liked by the one newspaper's one critic. I cannot see, the critic wrote, the use of invoking terror in an audience. The mime sat on his bed, pondering ways to make his performance more light-hearted. As usual, he attracted women who wished to still the raging storms of his heart. 
They attended his bed like highly paid surgeons operating on a difficult case. They were both passionate and intelligent. They did not suffer defeat lightly. Wrongly accused of merely miming love in his private life, he was somewhat surprised to be confronted with hatred. Surely, he said, if you now hate me, it was you who were imitating love and not I. You always were a slimy bastard, she said. What's in that parcel? I told you before, he said helplessly. String. You're a liar, she said. But later, when he untied the parcel, he found that she had opened it to check on his story. Her understanding of the string had been perfect. She had cut it into small pieces like spaghetti in a lousy restaurant. Against the advice of the tour organisers, he devoted two concerts entirely to love and laughter. They were disasters. It was felt that love and laughter were not, in his case, as instructive as terror. The next performance was quickly announced. Two hours of regret. Tickets sold quickly. He began with a brief interpretation of love, using it merely as a prelude to regret, which he elaborated on in a complex and moving performance, which he left the audience pale and shaken. In a final flourish, he passed from regret to loneliness to terror. The audience devoured the terror like brave tourists eating the hottest curry in an Indian restaurant. What you are doing, she said, is capitalising on your neurosis. Personally, I find it disgusting, like someone exhibiting their club foot or Turkish beggars with strange deformities. He said nothing. He was mildly annoyed at her presumption, that he had not thought this many, many times before. With perfect misunderstanding, she interpreted his passivity as disdain. Wishing to hurt him, she slapped his face. Wishing to hurt her, he smiled brilliantly. The story of the blue string touched the public imagination. Small brown paper packages were sold at the doors of his concerts. Standing on the stage, he could hear the packages being noisily unwrapped. He thought of American matrons buying Muslim prayer rugs. Exhausted and weakened by the heavy schedule, he fell prey to the doubts that had pricked, him at, pricked at him insistently for years. He lost all sense of direction and spent many listless hours by himself, sitting in a motel room listening to the air conditioner. He had lost confidence in the social uses of controlled terror. He no longer understood the audience's need to experience the very things he so desperately wished to escape from. He emptied the ashtrays fastidiously. He opened his brown paper parcel and threw the, pe the small pieces of string down the cistern. When the torrent of white water subsided, they remained floating there like a flotsam from a disaster at sea. The mime called a press conference to announce that there would be no more concerts. He seemed small and foreign and smelt of garlic. The press regarded him without enthusiasm. He watched their hovering pens anxiously, unsuccessfully willing them to write down his words. Briefly, he announced that he wished to throw his talent open to broader influences. His skills would be at the disposal of the people, who would be free to request his services for any purpose at any time. His skin seemed solid, but his eyes seemed bright, as those on a nodding fur mascot at the back window ledge of an American car. Asked to describe death, he busied himself taking Polaroid photographs of his questioners. Asked to describe marriage, he handed out small cheap mirrors with Made in Tunisia written on the back. His popularity declined. It was felt that he had become obscure and beyond the understanding of ordinary people. In response, he requested easier questions. He held back nothing of himself in his effort to please his audience. 
Asked to describe an aeroplane, he flew three times around the city, only injuring himself slightly on landing. Asked to describe a river, he drowned himself. It is unfortunate that this, his last and least typical performance, is the only one which has been recorded on film. There is a small crowd by the riverbank, no more than 30 people. A small, neat man dressed in grey suit picks his way through some children who seem to be more interested in the large plastic toy dog they are playing with. He steps into the river, which, at the bank, is already quite deep. His head is only visible above the water for a second or two, and then he is gone. A policeman looks expectantly over the edge, as if waiting for him to reappear. Then the film stops. Watching this last performance, it is difficult to imagine how this man stirred such emotions in the hearts of those who saw him. Wow, thank you, Lucy. That's such a heartbreaking end there, isn't it? Yeah. That's such a lovely piece. It's kind of um, an obscure man, that little mime. Yeah. (laughs) I love the way Peter Carey creates very obscure worlds, Mm. especially in this this volume of collected stories anyway. Mm. Um, No, that was really great. Thank you for that. Now, what do we have to finish off the show tonight? Yes, we've got a um, reading by Rupi Kaur, who um, is reading from her collection, Poems of Milk and Honey. So thank you so much for listening to us tonight, at right here, right now. And uh, we'll be back on the air next week. And if you've got a submission for us, please send it over at righthereradio at gmail.com. That's radio with a W at the start. Hi, my name is Rupi Gore, and I am an author from Toronto, Ontario, and Milk and Honey is my first collection of poetry. I want to apologize to all the women I've called pretty before I've called them intelligent or brave. I'm sorry I made it sound as though something as simple as what you're born with is the most you have to be proud of when your spirit has crushed mountains. From now on, I will say things like you are resilient and you are extraordinary. Not because I don't think you're pretty, but because I realize that you are so much more than that. You've been taught your legs are a pit stop for men that need a place to rest. A vacant body, empty enough for guests, but no one ever comes and is willing to stay. Don't mistake salt for sugar. If he wants to be with you, he will. It's that simple. Father, you always call to say nothing in particular. You ask what I'm doing or where I am, and when the silence stretches like a lifetime between us, I scramble to find questions to keep the conversation going. What I long to say most is, I understand this world broke you. It has been so hard on your feet. I don't blame you for not knowing how to remain soft with me. Sometimes I stay up thinking of all the places you are hurting, which you will never care to mention. I come from the same aching blood, from the same bone so desperate for attention I collapse in on myself. I am your daughter, I know the small talk is the only way you know how to tell me you love me, because it's the only way that I know how to tell you. To fathers with daughters. Every time you tell your daughter, you yell at her out of love. 
you teach her to confuse anger with kindness, which seems like a good idea, till she grows up to trust men who hurt her, because they look so much like you. I don't know what living a balanced life feels like. When I am sad, I don't cry, I pour. When I am happy, I don't smile, I glow. When I am angry, I don't yell, I burn. The good thing about feeling in extremes is when I love, I give them wings. But perhaps that isn't such a good thing. Cause they always tend to leave. And you should see me when my heart is broken. I don't grieve, I shatter. Like us at facebook.com slash sinmedia. Follow us on Twitter at sinmedia. And come visit us at syn.org.au.